Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of The Grind. For those of you who don't know, this is a show that we do whenever we can't get together for an episode of Game Face. I have been a busy bee behind the scenes over the last week and a half, two weeks. Wanna fill you guys in on that. Also wanna talk about a bunch of games that I'm playing and a bunch of other stuff. Let's get to it. All right, first I wanna give you guys an update. It's been a couple weeks since we did a Game Face. I wanna apologize for that. Uh, but Matt went on vacation right after E3, and he was gone for a couple weeks. He just got back. We've also been on the hunt for a new TriCaster operator. It has not been an easy process. We've talked to a bunch of people. Uh, a lot of people applied for the position, but ultimately weren't qualified. And then we narrowed those down to the people that were. And then, anyway, anyone who's ever done hiring, you know how it goes. Uh, so we're still in the process of finding a replacement for Sam, which really sucks. We kind of got hit with a double whammy there at once. Uh, but anyway, we should have a game face next week. However, it probably will not be live streamed. Uh, if it is, expect much lower production values because it'll probably be me running TriCaster while Matt and I discuss stuff. So bear with us a little bit here. We're in a bit of, little bit of a rough patch. Uh, we'll get through it and we'll fight through it and the show will be better than ever. I've been working on some other stuff behind the scenes. It's pretty exciting that I can't really discuss yet, but expect some pretty big news soon. I'm also compiling some suggestions uh, from, from folks on improvements or changes to the website, sifted.net. Uh, we haven't had any updates to the site for a bit. Uh, we're looking to make some changes, nothing gigantic, uh, but if you have anything uh, small that you'd like to see added to the site or something fixed or changed, there is now a thread in the forums asking you guys for those suggestions. So head on in there and let us have it. All right, it's July 4th. Hope you guys had a good July 4th. Hopefully uh, you ate some good food. You didn't blow your fingers off because you're gonna need those to play games. Uh, but usually this is a pretty dead time in the industry. However, in my opinion, some really good games have come out over the last couple weeks. And I wanna talk about a couple of them, actually a few of them. I'm gonna kick things off with, you guessed it, Crash Team Racing. I did a live stream of this um, on Saturday Social and we're gonna start doing those again um, I had to shoot Pactor Factor last Saturday, so I'm sorry I missed that, that week. But this week we're gonna keep rolling. We're gonna keep doing Saturday Social, so see you on that stream. I had only played Crash Team Racing for like two races before I did it on that stream. Um, and I, I definitely had problems coming to grips with the power sliding. And any of you guys who play kart racers, you know power sliding is probably the most important gameplay element for any one of them. And Crash Team Racing uses a different way to power slide. Like most kart racers, you initiate the slide with the R1 button and then you start sliding. But instead of kind of holding that until the charge builds up and then releasing it to get your turbo, you actually have to start tapping the left shoulder button and there's a little meter in the bottom right of the screen that fills up. Um, and if you tap that three times per turn at the, at the peak, you get the max turbo boost. So I had not learned how to do that on the stream. I literally learned how to do it within like 40 minutes the next day when I started playing it. Um, and it does make the game a lot more fun. However, I would say one thing I've noticed is that like once you start power sliding, it seems like your cart is on a rail. Because when I first started learning how to do it, I had to look down at the meter before I kind of just got the timing of it from muscle memory. I had to actually look at the meter and make sure I was timing it right to try to get the, the optimum boost. And what I found was I didn't even have to look at the screen and my cart stayed 
on the course. Now there were exceptions, like if it was a really, really like intense turn, then it would not stay kind of on the rail. But for more moderate turns, it seems like once you're sliding, like the game just kind of takes over and steers for you a good bit, uh, which maybe is it a bit of a contrivance of the way the power sliding works. Regardless, I got good at it eventually and started digging into more of the game and the game is excellent. It is, it, look, if you do not own a Switch and you like kart racers, go buy it right now. It is a $40 game and it is absolutely loaded to the gills with content. So there's a story mode with some goofy cinematics and like bosses that you race. Um, and that's fun, it's like Diddy Kong racing and that's rare for a kart racer to be perfectly honest. But when you really start digging into the menu, you start finding that there are Grand Prix races, there are time trials, there are battles, there are... It is loaded with content, this game. And then there's tons of stuff to unlock, carts and drivers and uh, cosmetics and things like that. I didn't really, and all the time I've played it, I haven't really been bothered to spend any real money. I was always unlocking stuff just through play. It is really good. And the online netcode is rock solid. Uh, lag is very rare. Uh, I really, really have been enjoying my time with Crash Team Racing. Now, I would still say Mario Kart 8 is still the king of kart racers. But again, you don't have a Switch. It is the pinnacle of kart racing on any platform other than Nintendo platforms. So I definitely recommend it. Um, even on Switch, if you're tired of, uh, of Mario Kart 8 and you're looking for another game, it's a good option on Switch, although obviously with some visual caveats. Um, as far as criticisms I have of the game, there are some, other than the power sliding, like I feel like it's that way just because it doesn't want to be like Mario Kart. It's an inferior way to handle power sliding compared to Mario Kart, in my opinion. The other problem is that the game just has evil rubber band AI. So playing the game by yourself, uh, if you're playing a story mode, or you're playing the Grand Prix, it is so cheap. Um, essentially what you have to do to get first, and you'll finish second, every time, once you get good at it, you'll finish second every time, and then to finish first on a course in the story mode or a course in the Grand Prix, you basically just have to get the right power up at the right time so that you can take out the driver who's in first place and then cross the finish line. And you get better at that as you play the game, but it's like you, you'll try a track once and you'll get a time. And then you're like, okay, first place got three seconds better. So you figure you need to improve three seconds to get first place in that race. That's not how it works. You could cut off 10 seconds from your next race and that other driver who's designated to win will still be right there with you in the race. So look, it's a kart racer. Rubber band AI is nothing new to that genre or really any racing game, uh, but it is particularly bad in crash team racing. So if you're planning on getting this game to play it single player, there's a lot of content there. Just be prepared to be a bit patient. All right, next I wanna talk briefly about something that's happened over the last week with PlayStation Plus. So Sony announced the free games for PlayStation Plus about a week ago, and the games were pretty underwhelming. Um, there was like a Horizon Chase racing game, which is an indie racing game, which I think started on mobile. And then there was Pro Evolution Soccer 2019. Now I get Sony's thinking, it's the Women's World Cup, this month it makes sense but for whatever reason sports are polarizing a lot of people who would pay the money for playstation plus every year are not big sports fans generally uh, and there was kind of a backlash over i don't think it was just that it was pes it, but it was it was pro evolution soccer plus this other kind of cap, crappy driving game and then mysteriously over the last 24 hours 
Sony has changed the free games after kind of the month that already started. So you can understand why some people are a bit flummoxed by this. And to stir the pot even further today, Konami said that it had no idea what happened, that PlayStation didn't really notify it or tell it why it was doing it. Uh, they said they woke up and saw posts on the internet and were like, what the? And they haven't really heard anything from Sony about it. So it sounds to me like fan backlash uh, got Sony to change the games, but that's pretty, that's pretty dirty pool. Like, look, we don't know. Maybe PlayStation still plans on paying Konami the money it would have made from this deal. I don't know. But to me, you don't offer something and then take it away. So if people are unhappy, you don't take away Pro Evolution Soccer. You include it still, because I'm sure some people were excited about it. You include it still, and then you throw in the sweeteners. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, I do think it was probably from Backlash is what caused Sony to change its mind and change the games, but you can't give somebody something and then take it away. All right, next I wanna talk about an indie game for Switch called Cadence of Hyrule. It is a Zelda game. It is not made by Nintendo. It's made by a small indie studio that created the original template for a game called Crypt of the Necrodancer. Uh, both games are essentially action RPGs that are set on a grid where you must attack and avoid enemies to the beat. So a Zelda song plays, you need to move on a grid to the beat and then attack enemies on the beat of the music. Um, it is just the second game um, in this style and back when Crypt of the Necrodancer came out, I feel it got away with a lot of its shortcomings because it was such a unique idea. And now you would assume with Cadence of Hyrule that it would perfect a lot of the issues or at least fix a lot of the issues and get it on track. But what I found with Cadence of Hyrule is that I have a lot of the same issues with it that I had with Crypt of the Necrodancer. So everything, it's a roguelite, so everything is procedurally generated. Um, the game is never the same twice as far as like each board that you play on. And essentially the object of the game is to clear each board. Um, and when you clear all the enemies from a board, you get a diamond and then you can use the diamonds to buy new gear and, and things of that nature. So essentially the object is to clear each board and each board is kind of a self-contained puzzle that's snapped into an interconnecting map. Now on some stages, there are little monuments that you can activate that will let you warp and warp all over the map once you have it unlocked. This is a huge concession, not just for this franchise or this style of game, but just for roguelites in general. Um, it makes it way easier than most roguelites. Uh, generally, you have permadeath in these games. Uh, and in this case, I think they softened it a little bit, knowing that it was gonna be a different audience playing the game. And I certainly appreciate that because I'm not a gigantic fan of roguelites. That said, the game's not easy at all. And a lot of it comes down to, in my opinion, the music and rhythm mechanics are not great. Uh, I'm a DJ, have been a DJ for 20 some years. I'm pretty good at staying on beat. In fact, that's kind of what you do when you play house music is you're making sure that you're playing two records on beat at the same BPM. That's called beat matching. Um, in this game, I feel like, now I will say this, when you first boot it up, you go through a calibration process. And on my plasma TV, where the delay is terrible, 
it was almost off the charts. So I have the switch going through a receiver that then goes into my plasma TV. There's so much delay in there that it was almost so bad that the game was like, wait a minute, it can't be this bad. Uh, and then I came back here in on this setup where I have a, a, a monitor with a lot less lag and, a direct, and it's directly plugged in without a receiver and the game was unplayable and I had to go and like recalibrate it again. So that's something you have to keep in mind with this game in general. But even after calibration, I felt like the game was still not registering whether or not I was moving to the beat. Eventually it got really annoying for me because what happens is if you don't move to the beat, your character will not move. He will delay before moving a block. And if you do that, an enemy is going to get you and hit you. And you cannot take very many hits in this before you die. Like literally a few hits from enemies and you've basically failed that board, so to speak. Even though it's been softened for a new audience, it's still a challenging game. The way the world is laid out, it's a Zelda game, so there's like areas where um, you look on the map and it says, okay, I need to go to this board and then go down. Um, but you do that and it like warps you back to the beginning because it's like, you know, the lost forest in Zelda or whatever. So it's not just as simple as looking at the map. Another problem I have with this game was it's not very clear what you need to do after you beat a boss. So there are four main bosses in the game. Each one gives you an item and you have to collect those four items to move on to the end stage of the game. And once you beat a boss, that's a monumental moment, you get one of those items. The game does a really terrible job of telling you where you need to go or what you need to do next. Now it does help again that you can warp around the map um, you can kind of jump around and look for stuff a lot easier than you could have. But again, this is a game where you get hit a few times, you die. You don't want to spend a ton of time just kind of scouting and figuring out where you want to go next. So that was another criticism I had. I will say this, um, Crypt of the Necrodancer was, I don't know, maybe too fantasy for you, but you like Zelda and you like the sound of the idea. It, it's a cheap pickup. It's not a full price game. Um, it is something different and I do feel like they handle the Zelda license pretty well uh, with a lot of respect. Uh, so I give them points for that but I finished uh, the third boss off. I'm on the verge of going after the fourth and when I could not find the fourth boss after a while I just kind of stopped and that's when I started picking up Bloodstained, started playing more Crash Team Racing, etc. So uh, I think it's good if you're a type of player who's looking for something different. Maybe you only own a Switch. I think it's a good choice for you. But right now, if you own multiple platforms, there's so many other good options out there for around the same price. All right, next up, I'm going to talk about Super Mario Maker 2. I have not sunk a ton of time into this game yet, and I did not play this for like a couple days after I had the code. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I was not that excited to check it out, but I have given it a pretty good run here over the last few days. And I guess my overarching opinion about it is that it is better than Super Mario Maker 1. I have enjoyed my time with this more than I enjoyed the first one. And I think it is a factor of more tools being added to the game because it does create a lot more variety or the ability for people to create a lot more or add a little more variety into the games that they, they make. Let's see, let's start running through some of the modes here. Uh, there is a story mode in this, although story, I would use story very loosely. Um, at the beginning of the game, there's a self-destruct button and your dog, your goofy dog, like stands on it and it blows up Peach's castle. So the objective of the game is to rebuild Peach's castle. Um, and you do that by playing through pre-made levels. 
Um, and then each level, depending on its difficulty, you'll get X number of coins. And then you also, if you finish that level, you get to take all the coins with you that you collected while you were playing that level. And then the main hall of Princess Peach's uh, castle is 500 coins. And then the East Wing is five, whatever. You get the idea. Uh, there aren't that many stages of construction for, <laughs> for the castle. Um, you complete like three parts of it and you're basically a, a fifth of the way there. Uh, the, it's, so it's not an especially long mode. And the other thing I would say too about it is the levels are good. Um, I, I enjoy most of the levels that they've kind of preloaded into it, but it's strange because you're not in control you are to an extent you can pick from a list but ultimately you pretty much have to finish every one if you want to complete the story mode if you don't have that much flexibility you can choose the order but you ultimately are going to probably have to play almost all of them when it's all said and done so it does give you a little bit of flexibility in how you play it but the truth is is like every time you start a level it is a completely new experience so there's no continuity no congruity in the story mode it's like okay this stage is super mario brothers or og controls og visuals the next one is like new super mario brothers in 3d and you have a whole other set of commands and controls that you can do in that that you couldn't do in the one before and it just jumps all around so the those with an encyclopedic knowledge of the 2D Mario games have a distinct advantage in this game as far as being able to make progress like right away. If you can remember every move, every suit, every power up from just about every 2D Mario game, you're gonna have a huge advantage in this because they just pop up. So all of a sudden you have the Tanuki suit, which I do remember how that works because I just recently played a game with that suit, but that's just an example. They pull stuff out of almost every Mario game ever made, and a lot of the levels when you play it the first time, you die and you're like, oh, I forgot that that killed me in that way, or I forgot that this power-up couldn't do this, or I forgot that this suit couldn't do this. So again, if you know all this stuff, you'll probably be able to play through the story mode just like that. So the story mode is not a big selling point of the game, honestly, it's just really, a flimsy structure given to what you're doing in the other parts of the game. And that is building, sharing, downloading, playing levels that are created by fans, users. What I've discovered with this franchise in general is you give the users a tool and you assume it's gonna be used maybe for X, Y, and Z. And then you discover that people have figured out very quickly how to use it for like five other things. One thing that's vastly improved is the ability to sort user courses. That was a really big problem in the first one, and it's way better here. You have a lot more options. You can just sort by likes. You can sort like every course that's ever been created. I wish Nintendo would give the ability to say, okay, this is a speedrun course. This is a more power-up driven course. This is a vertical scrolling course. So the user that has the most thumbs up on their levels will bubble up. And then you go to their page and then you can't even sort their page by the stages with the most likes. Playing user levels, a big part of it is, oh, I died instantly there, I can't do that. And going through the whole stage that way. Um, it's interesting looking at the way users build levels because they don't really get player psychology. So I was playing this one stage, it was basically just a speed run. And it's all set up so that if you just hold the run button, 
and then you time it correctly, you can go through the whole thing in like 25 seconds or whatever. I played it like six times, I memorized it. I get all the way to the end and there's just this like quirky thing at the end that you have to figure out to complete it. I tried it two more times, never again. It's like, you don't challenge somebody to do this and then show them the finish line and then have some goofy little condition that they need to finish the level. And this kind of stuff happens over and over and over again. Everyone tries to be too clever. Uh, people try to put too many concepts in one stage, uh, which I've discovered is another problem. Uh, I think just in general, you don't get the building of principles and ideas and concepts and mechanics that you would get in a polished Mario game. You're just jumping all over and it's almost just like you throw a bunch of Mario stuff in a trash compactor, you grind it up and then you spit it out and here's this level. And sometimes it can be brilliant, sometimes it can just be incredibly annoying. And again, that's something that was just like the first game that kind of turned me off. But there's no denying this is a very polished game. There's also a ton of content aside from all the sharing and stuff. There's multiplayer stages so if you watch some of the esports stuff that happened at e3 with this game you basically just race three other players to the end of a stage uh it works well in the head-to-head -head setting of esports but when there's four people doing it and some of the stages require stuff like going in and then finding a key and then going through this door like i found that you can like cheat and just wait for people to come back with the keys and just go through the door uh finishing the level is this weird archaic like okay, here everyone is, now who can jump most quickly to this box? It's, it, it's not good. But the deal breaker is the latency. It is almost unplayable. The lag in this game. Um, it literally stopped, turned into a slideshow, went into slow motion, and I've got my Switch hardwired. So, you know, again, when you don't have an ethernet port on your console, by default, people are gonna use Wi-Fi. And that's the problem. Most of the people who are playing this are playing it on Wi-Fi and it just screws up the experience for everybody else. Is it worth the money? It is a full price game. Um, and I would say yes, it is absolutely worth a full price game, uh, the full price. If you are a 2D Mario fan, this is just heaven, bottom line. Uh, there's really no other way to put it. I hope that Nintendo this time will make some more changes to the uh, course sorting and give us some more options to filter that stuff by or sift that stuff by, I'm not holding my breath because they knew about it with the first game and never did it. But if you're just looking for endless Mario, this is it. The fourth and final game I've been playing is Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. This is for all intents and purposes, Castlevania in 2019. Iga, the creator of Castlevania since the beginning had a falling out with Konami and he went on his own and he kickstarted this game and it's taken a long time and here it is. And I love it. Of all the four games I've been playing, and these are all very good games, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night is my favorite. It is excellent. <laughs> uh, I was really nervous about this game because it's been delayed several times and some of the gameplay that had been put out for it was not all that impressive, but somehow the game came together very, very well. Um, it's $40. It's out for pretty much every platform. Now, fair warning, the Switch version of this game has a lot of issues. Uh, I played the PlayStation 4 version and it also crashed a couple times, uh, but that's nothing compared to what's been going on with Switch. So if you have the choice, and I know you might want to buy it for Switch because it's Castlevania and the Switch is portable. I get it. I should probably go with another platform. 
But wow, this game is just amazing. And uh, it totally reminded me why uh, th this genre, Metroidvania, Castle, whatever you want to call it, has become so popular. Um, like I said, it is a budget title, but it took me about, well, I'm not even finished yet, to be honest with you. I have been stuck on the final boss for a, a few days. Uh, I'll try it a couple times a day. It's There's two forms, and I can beat the first form without like taking any damage now, and then the second form just annihilates me. So um, I haven't finished it yet, but I do know this is the final boss that I'm on. Uh, but it took me about 25 to 30 hours to finish the game. So value-wise, uh, it's amazing. There's also a, a game plus after you're done. Um, why do I like it so much? What I like most about it is how you can play it so many different ways. So like most people, you know, you have kind of one character that you build and you get used to those abilities. And the abilities in this game are called shards. Um, you can basically assign shards to your character and their abilities. There's like passive ones, there's directional ones. Um, and then there's like big gigantic spells. It'll do a ton of damage. But anyway, uh, the way the game is built is that as you get these shards, uh, they give you new abilities. And then there's parts of the castle that don't that you can't get to until you get new abilities. So you're constantly like jumping all over the place. Once you're about halfway through the game anyway, you're jumping around the castle a good bit. Um, to help with that, this is this is one of, the, I think, one of the easier Castlevania games, and I'm gonna consider it a Castlevania game, uh, because there are, there are save points all over the game, and it is kind of trite, and you can't abuse it, because every time you go back to a save point, your mana and your health refills, uh, but there are also warp points all over the castle, and you can just basically warp wherever you want once you've unlocked each one, and it, you can kind of cheese the game a little bit to use between the save points and the warp points because you can always warp back to your base and just, you know, buy new weapons and, you know, replenish your health and your mana once you get to any warp point. So basically a warp point is as good as a save point and they do make it kind of easy, but I would say that the game knows that it's built this way and so it's built as challenges knowing that this is the case. Now, this results, honestly, in a near-perfect difficulty balance. It, it's, per, it's perfect. So there are times where it seems really easy. There are times where it seems really challenging. You have moments where you're just right in the zone and every battle is like tooth and nail. Um, and again, what I was talking about earlier is how you can approach those in any way because you start to settle in. You get used to certain, using certain abilities that really work out for you or really pay off in combat. Um, but then sometimes you get to enemies that force you to use something else. And once you start using that something else, you start to realize that, oh, holy cow, this is a completely effective way to play this game. Like, I play the game mostly as, like, a melee character. But you can absolutely be lethal if you want to go with the ranged character. Um, and it's just, thinking back to the classic Castlevanias, um, it, it just really wasn't this way. So you can kind of see how it kind of started the genre, other developers took the idea and ran with it while Iga's been gone. And now he comes back and he incorporates some of those ideas from the evolution of the genre that he started in the first place. So stories, I wouldn't call it good, it's okay. Uh, it does stay in the background for the most part. There are cinematics. Um, most of the story is handled via text bubbles, but there are cinematics for kind of pivotal points in the plot. They're not great. The animation's not that good. 
Um, the game is built in 3D, but it plays from a 2D perspective. There's a couple points where they try to use almost like a parallax, like scrolling thing, and it makes the world literally warp. Like it just, it doesn't work. So they try to do the 2.5D thing a couple times, uh, not that successful, but for the most part, you're playing it all in 2D. Uh, but what I really love about this game, I love the setting, I love the tone, I love the combat. Um, the controls are crazy responsive. You rarely ever blame the controls for dying in this game. And like I said, the challenge is just perfectly honed. You go through these peaks and valleys where you feel like a badass and you feel completely weak. And then you'll fight a boss that like whoops your butt, but then maybe you fight the next boss and you take him down with like a few swipes. It's, it's just a very exhilarating, fun, engrossing game. And I had all four of these games to play over the last week and a half. And what did I play? I played Bloodstained. All right, the last thing I wanna talk about on this episode of The Grind is there's a rumor floating around that Sony is in the process of buying Remedy. Now, Remedy, for those of you who don't know, Remedy is the studio that created Max Payne, it created Alan Wake, it's currently developing a multi-platform multi game called Control. Um, it has been cozy with Microsoft for quite a while. If you remember, Alan Wake was an Xbox exclusive uh, and Remedy's kind of just been working with Microsoft and Microsoft just bought up all those studios, just bought Double Fine and announced it at E3 2019 and did not buy Remedy. If I'm Remedy, I'm probably a little upset about that. Uh, you dedicated a big chunk of your company's history to supporting Microsoft and Microsoft goes on this spending spree and decides to not buy Remedy. Now it may have tried and Remedy may have just been asking for more money than Microsoft was willing to pay. It, it could happen, who knows. If it didn't approach Remedy, man, Remedy has a right to have some gripes over that, I think. So anyway, uh, people were like, okay, PlayStation buying Remedy, that makes sense because Microsoft bought all these studios and it needs to compete. Uh, well, then it was announced that Remedy had regained the rights to Alan Wake, which to, if you need a clear sign that it's about to make a big move, there it is. Um, so it appears that it is going to be 100% accurate that Sony is going to purchase Remedy. Now, what does that do? To the best of my knowledge, Remedy does not own Max Payne. Rockstar Games owns Max Payne, or Take-Two, I can't remember which company actually owns that. So that's not something that you could expect to be exclusive on PlayStation going forward. Although I wouldn't put it above Rockstar or Take-Two to work out some kind of a deal where it does uh, ultimately release it exclusively for PlayStation. Um, it might be in its best interest since Remedy is going to be developing probably exclusively for PlayStation hardware. Maybe it sells more if it sells to that base and it's more of kind of like a second party thing. But this has big implications. So people liked Alan Wake. It didn't sell especially well. Uh, rumors have been floating around about Alan Wake 2 for quite a while and people were excited about it. Some of those stories on Sifted did really well, got a lot of traction with our users. So people care about Remedy. People care about Remedy's games. I just, unfortunately, I think the franchise people care the most about is not something that it can lock down as an exclusive for PlayStation. So that's a little disappointing, but look, this is a big investment in the future. And Remedy has proven that it can make high quality games that people like and people want to buy um, and that is an invaluable resource. It also has proven that for the most part, it gets its projects done in a timely manner. Uh, most of its games have only been delayed a couple times max. Uh, so it's not no a notorious developer for delaying things and things coming out late. 
Uh, not that Sony cares about that because obviously they're working with Naughty Dog and all these other studios uh, who have kind of had, and I wouldn't say that they're even studios, they're notoriously late with games, but Sony just gives development studios a big leash and basically says, look, when it's done, it's done and we'll make way more money if it's a great game than if we release it early and it's mediocre. Uh, Sony seems to get that. So I think it's a great marriage. I think the games that Remedy makes are a good fit for Sony's audience. Um, I think it also kind of fills a void a little bit because Quantic Dream just left the fold and Remedy kind of makes games similar to that, but not quite so narrative driven, although still kind of. Uh, so I hate to say that this is like the replacement girlfriend uh, for Sony, but I think it's an upgrade. Quantic Dream was a studio that could just kind of make one kind of game. A Remedy has proven that it can do a lot more than that. So if it's true, and I think it is, I think it's a smart acquisition for Sony that will pay dividends a long ways down the road. All right, so that does it for this episode of The Grind. It's been a while since we've done one of these. Uh, we've been rolling with Game Face for so many weeks and months in a row, we didn't really have the need, but obviously with things going the way they are right now, I thought I needed to touch base with you guys. Uh, also a drawing for June's loot box is coming in the next day or so, so look out for that and good luck. Um, but should be a Game Face next week, probably pre-recorded, maybe stream, but probably pre-recorded, but no matter what, you'll get an episode. Uh, so look out for that. Don't forget the forum thread with suggestions for site improvements and changes. And stay tuned because there could be some really big news coming.